0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You were not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul wrote, we do not segment our lives giving some time to God, some to our business or schooling while keeping parts to ourselves. The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God under His authority, under the authority of God and for, and, and for the honor and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. You are not far from the kingdom of God. This is the phrase that Jesus utters here in this text that has actually given me pause. This is the phrase that I have spent a lot of time thinking about this this week. I've been been playing it over and over in my head and and praying about it as as I've worked to prepare this message. And if I'm honest, this is a phrase, in one sense, this phrase troubles me. You're not far from the kingdom of God. is what Jesus says to this man. Right? And I want you to think about what this means. It means that you are close. You're almost there. But it also means you're not there. You're close, but you're not all the way there. This phrase that Jesus spoke can be both an encouragement but also a warning an encouragement because you're close. You're almost there. Like, come on. You're, you're right there. Come on in. But a warning because it's a statement that you're not there yet. You are not yet safe. You are not there. You are still at risk. You are still on the outside. One commentary I read this week about this text said that, you know, you can be within an inch of heaven and still go to hell. What a sobering warning. There are phrases in the Bible, like this one, by the way. There are lots of phrases in the Bible that Jesus utters that shake me and rattle me to my core, especially as a, as a pastor, especially as a preacher. Like Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, If there's a verse in the Bible that keeps me up at night, it's this one. The phrase, like this drives me to know the gospel, to continually proclaim the gospel, to continually call people to repentance and faith. Because Jesus says very clearly that there are people who are religious and people who think that they know, that they, they know who he is people who think that they have a relationship with Him, and they even call Him Lord, who are still on the outside of the kingdom. That is a devastating truth for me. As we talked about so many times, there are only two types of people in the world. There are people who are in the kingdom and those who are not. That's really how the the world breaks down. There's no middle ground, not almost in the kingdom. There are people who believe or who don't believe. There are people who repent and believe the gospel or there are people who do their own thing one way or the other. And Jesus says that there are people who think that they are in the kingdom who are not in the kingdom. People who, who think that they have hope that actually have no hope. And that truth causes me to examine myself as as a Christian, but especially as a pastor and teacher, because I don't want to give anybody a false hope. I don't want to give anybody a false sense of security. I want people to hear the truth of the gospel and turn to Christ in repentance and faith and know for certain and be completely confident that they are saved. I want to see people all the way to the kingdom and into the kingdom. Not almost there, but all the way there. But brothers and sisters, I'm firmly convinced that there are people in our world and in our community and perhaps even in our own church who think that they're in the kingdom, but they're not quite there. They're not far from the kingdom, but they're not in the kingdom. You see, one of the questions I've learned to ask of other people that's very revealing it's the simplest of questions, but it's a question people struggle to answer, and it's this. What is the gospel? I'm going to tell you right now that the majority of people who call themselves Christians that I ask that question of struggle to answer that question. The vast majority of people that I ask that question of who called themselves Christians, who've been Christians for many years, cannot define accurately what the gospel is. So many people can't do it. You don't believe me? Start asking people the question. You will find it is very revealing. The majority of people I have asked that question of don't know the answer to that question. They don't know how to communicate what the gospel is or how the gospel works. We as Christians talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel all the time. But so many people can't even tell you what the gospel actually is. People will say that we need to preach the gospel, we need to spread the gospel, but most professing Christians, in my experience, can't preach the gospel. Because most professing Christians can't explain the gospel, in my experience. Those that I've questioned, they don't know what the gospel actually is. Including people in leadership throughout America in the church, including people who serve in the church, including people that are called themselves ministers of the gospel, I once asked a minister of the gospel, a man who loves the Lord, I believe he loves the Lord, but I asked him, can you explain to me clearly and concisely what is the gospel? And he said, very astutely, the gospel is the proclaimed words about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and his message speaks of faith, peace, love, kindness, joy, and patience. I said, that sounds pretty good. I said, those things are in the Bible. Those are certainly theological truths. Right? But 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 how about how does knowing those things bring someone into a right relationship with God? Does those things, knowing those things, do that? No. Because that's not the gospel. Those are truths about God for sure, but that is not the gospel. And hear me, this is not just a few people. The majority of professional Christians I have talk to when I ask that question. In fact, again, I would just ask you to try this thought experiment. When you talk to people that are Christian, just say, can you explain to me very succinctly and concisely what is the gospel? You'll find people start stuttering and and really struggling to explain it. The majority of professing Christians I've talked to struggle with this. In fact, Friday, I had a conversation with a man who decided he wanted to comment on one of my Facebook posts, which I encourage people to do that. That's fine. But his comment seemed really kind of legalistic to me. And, and, and so I, I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm not sure where he's coming from. But what it seemed to say that he was asking people to obey, like basically saying we need to obey all the commands of God. And, and so again, I wasn't sure where he was coming from. I gave him the benefit of the doubt. And so I explained, you know, that I, I, I believe that we should certainly pursue obedience. That is part of the Christian life, but not as a means to be saved, Right. Because, because we can't, right? And, and, I, and I said that, that, that you're not to, to do that as a means to be saved, but out of our growth in our faith in Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin to be obedient. And he pushes back on me and says, you believe what you want to believe. He says, but, but I firmly believe, in essence, that you need to obey the commandments to be, to be saved. In fact, here's word for word what he wrote to me. So I'm not misquoting this man. These are his words. It's a a screenshot that I took, and he says, I know that through the grace of God, faith in Jesus Christ, and by following his commandments, we will be perfect. Can you see the problem with this statement right here? The one little word, and, changes everything. It doesn't belong there. Remember the cry of the Reformation, the cry of our theology is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. There is no end. When you take the grace of God and, and faith in him and then you add the word and to it, you have destroyed the gospel This heresy is exactly what Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians about. Because Paul planted a church, several churches in the area of Galatia, and he taught them the gospel of grace. And once he left there, then men, Jewish men, came behind him. They were called Judaizers who began to say, yes, you need to have faith in Christ and you need to become obedient to the law and become Jews. And Paul said to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Because the word and makes it a different gospel. And then he goes on to say, but even if we, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned, let him go to hell. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you the gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. The word and here is this man. in this man's statement, makes his belief a false gospel. The difference between the kingdom being in the kingdom and not in the kingdom is one little word. Now understand, this man, I want you to understand, Like this man believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, just like us. This man believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. This man believes in the resurrection. In fact, if you were to take most of the essential things that we say that we believe, this man would actually affirm almost all of them. But hear me. This man is not a Christian. This man is not in the kingdom. He may be very near to the kingdom... But he's not in the kingdom. Why? Because he doesn't know the gospel. He believes a false gospel. He believes a gospel that's completely the opposite of what the gospel of grace is. And I fear that there are many people who profess to be Christians, who profess to be in Christ, are in the same circumstance. That they may not be far from the kingdom, but are still not In the kingdom. And so what does it mean to be in the kingdom? How do we cross over the threshold to being from the outside and to be on the inside? How do we know? Well, the text that we're looking at today actually helps us to address the very thing. It took me a long time to really see this, but that's where Jesus is going. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 28. Mark says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the most important of all? Now, what we need to remember is the context of what's happening right now. And if you've been following along, you have a pretty good handle on it. But let me just remind you, this this is Passion Week, right? Which is the week where Jesus is going to be crucified and resurrected, right? And it began on... Palm Sunday, where Jesus wrote into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, proving that he is the Messiah and the king. And then the next day he goes out to the temple and he exercises his authority as the king by driving out the merchants who were selling animals in the court of the Gentiles and exchanging currency. And then the next day, the ruling elites, the the muckety-mucks, the the, higher-ups, the Sanhedrin, they came out to confront Jesus and challenge his authority And Jesus very quickly, if you remember, puts them in their place and says, you have no authority over me. And they then were upset and offended and they're threatened by him because Jesus is a very real threat to their political and religious power. And so they wanted to arrest him, but they couldn't do it. Why? Because he's too popular, right? It's like politicians today. (laughs) They only get real bold when they think everybody's behind them right? They don't want to arrest Jesus because they're afraid to be on the wrong side of the mob, and so they don't arrest him. But what do they do? They put into play a plan where they're trying to trap him. They send men to Jesus, different groups of men, to ask him difficult, controversial questions in order to try to get him to say something that might get him into trouble, maybe lose favor with the crowd, or maybe even get him in trouble with the Romans and have him arrested that way. And so the first group of people who come to talk to him, if you remember, with the Pharisees and, and an unlikely group of people to come with them, the Herodians, and they ask him about the legality of Jews paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus astonishes them with his answer, and he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's, affirming that Caesar and God both have a rightful claim over the lives of the people, but at the same time saying that God is supreme over all things. And they were blown away by his wisdom. They couldn't believe how how sharp he was. And then they, and then they sent him another group of men called the Sadducees. That's what we talked about last week. They were politically powerful men, that they had a lot of influence over the priesthood. But they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they had had a great time debating Pharisees and really developing sharp-pointed questions that made the Pharisees look foolish. And so they thought for sure they're going to ask Jesus this very difficult question about marriage and the resurrection, that he's going to look stupid. But Jesus goes right at them and basically tells them that, that the reason why they're wrong is because they don't even know the Scriptures, and they don't even know, you know who God really is. Their view of the Scriptures and the view of God is all messed up. And again, they're astonished by his wisdom, right? He has incredible wisdom to answer questions in a way nobody expects. And so that's what we see in this text. This man, this scribe, walks up. He witnesses this confrontation, this debate that he is having with with the Sadducees. And he sees Jesus answer them well. And he recognizes that Jesus is pretty bright. Like Jesus knows his stuff, you know what I mean? Like, like, Jesus is brilliant. And it says that, that he's a scribe. Right? In other words, he's a teacher of the law. And what that means is that this guy is not some intellectual slouch showing up. Right? Like, he's not going to be easily impressed. I mean, he's among the best and the brightest in Judah. He's one of the scribes. And the scribes and Pharisees are often seen together throughout Mark in the, in the New Testament. Right? And they represent really kind of the orthodox stream of Judaism at the time. And the scribes were, in essence, the academics. Right, They were the intellectuals. They were the ones who, who were the ones that were doing the thinking. They were the teachers of the law. And so they knew the law inside and out. They, they had been studying it since they were children. They had memorized the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they were experts in the law like the Sadducees, but they accepted the entire Old Testament as authoritative, and they believed in the resurrection. And so what you need to understand is this man comes up you know, and to talk to Jesus. He isn't just some random guy off the street asking a random question. He's probably one of the smartest people and one of the best educated people in the city, and he watches this debate between the Sadducees and Jesus and he is astonished like everyone else about how Jesus brilliantly answers the question he recognizes that Jesus is brilliant he and i can't overstate this because sometimes sometimes it takes brilliance to recognize brilliance for example uh, my son sherman outdoors kind of guy you know he pointed kim and i toward a couple of documentaries about rock climbing a subject i never really would have paid attention to, but these documentaries are actually riveting. I don't know if you've seen Free Solo and uh, and, and, and The Dawn Wall, right? And and it's just, it's about a couple of guys who are expert rock climbers doing incredible things that nobody else in history has ever done, right? I mean, it's just incredible stuff. And one of the things I noticed was that people, normal people, marveled at the accomplishments of these men, Right? They have both have their own rock climbing journeys. They're actually friends um, in real life, but they have they're doing really difficult things, and people are amazed by that. But the people who are in the greatest amazement, who scanned most astonished, who are in the greatest awe of these accomplishments, are other world-renowned rock climbers. And the reason why they marvel even more is because they know by experience how difficult it is what these guys are trying. The rest of us go, that's amazing. They're going, you have no idea. You have no idea how amazing this is. Their expertise gives them a clearer perspective of how amazing this is. Their expertise causes them to be even more astonished than the average person. And that's what we see here. This man is a scribe. He's a brilliant man in his own right. And he recognizes Jesus is a level above. Right? They see that Jesus is special here. That's why the question he asked Jesus is so relevant. Notice what he asks him. Which commandment is the most important of all? And what we need to realize is the question he's asking, unlike the other questions that have been asked of him to this point, is not a hostile question. This is actually a legitimate question. Because he recognizes Jesus is uber smart. He knows the law. And the reason why he asked the question is because this is the burning question that has been debated for quite some time at that time. Lots of people had been asking and researching this particular question. What is the most important commandment? And the point of the question was this. What is the commandment that really is in essence the law? What sums up the law? I mean, because let's be honest, the law in the Torah was 613 separate commandments. 613 individual commandments in the law. But it was believed that there was a unifying theme, that there was a unifying theme to it, that there was one commandment that was the foundation of everything else that made everything else make sense. And so they asked the question, right, that everyone else wanted to know, what is the commandment that really, in essence, represents everything else? I mean, what is it that we need to get right, is what they're asking, it's like us asking the question, okay, boil it down for me. What is the gospel? All right. I mean, I know what the Bible's, you know, I know all the Bible verses, but what is the gospel? Boil it down for me. One phrase, one statement. Bottom line it for me. What's the minimum that I need to know to understand the gospel? Is in essence kind of like the questions they're asking. What's the foundation of the law? What does it mean to be obedient to the law? What is the one commandment that represents everything else? And at the time, there was a number of prominent rabbis and a lot of teachers that had offered their own perspectives on this matter, by the way. So again, this is not just a question out in random space, contextual in history. This is a question that people were wrestling with. From the famous Rabbi Hillel, he said to a Gentile who was seeking to be converted to Judaism, right? He said, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. What you hate for yourself, don't do that to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Which, by the way, this is kind of like the negative form of the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you'd have them do to you. This is saying, hey, what you don't like, then don't do that. Right? That's what Hillel was saying. The essence of of, of the law for him was that. Rabbi Akiba said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the encompassing principle of the law. Right? That it's about loving people. Yet another rabbi had written, and I don't know his name, but he said that charity and righteous deeds outweigh all other commandments in the Torah. It's about right action. That was, that was their understanding. And so what you need to understand is that there was a lot of brilliant people thinking about and talking about this very question. And this scribe, a brilliant man in his own right, comes to Jesus, witnesses a debate between him and some very sharp people as well, And he sees that Jesus is head and shoulders above them. And so he decides to ask him the question that everybody wants to know. What is the greatest commandment? What is the unifying principle? What is the one thing that you must get right in the law? And in verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. This, and he said, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now notice, right? Jesus did not from one, but two commandments. And notice that other rabbis ground their understanding of the law in how men treat other men. All right. That's, that, that seemed to be the consistent view. It's about how you treat other people. It's, it's your behavior towards men. But Jesus grounds his understanding of the law in the obligation that men have to God. In fact, he cites the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. This isn't something he quoted off the top of his head. He's quoting a prayer. The Shema was a prayer that old Jewish people were supposed to recite every single morning and every single evening. In fact, many of them wore these scriptures in little leather boxes on their foreheads called phylacteries. It was a declaration of who God is and man's obligation to him. They would declare that that, that the Lord or Yahweh is one. They began with a theological statement about who God is. And then they would then follow that up with what they owed God because of who he is. They would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And a lot of people have a tendency to kind of get hung up and overanalyze. The idea of heart and mind and soul and strength. And they want to look for the significance and how that fits into all. And what happens is when you get so focused on that, you're actually missing the overarching point. The overarching point is actually very simple. The Shema, what it's saying, and what Jesus is saying, is the obligation that mankind owes to God for who he is, is to love him with everything that they are. That you're to love God with everything you are. That is the significance of what's being said here. That we love God with all that we have. We love God with everything that we do. We love God supremely with our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. That we love God in how we raise our children and how we do our jobs and how we how we pay our bills and how we even love our spouses. In, in, in fact, the simpler way to to say it is that there's not a part of your life that you don't, that, that isn't involved in you loving God. You are to love God with, with supremely with everything that you have and everything that you are. That's the place that Jesus starts. In fact, Matthew records Jesus saying that this is the first and the greatest commandment. This is the one you got to get right. right. You don't get this right, nothing else matters. Acknowledging God for who He is, loving Him supreme, is the first and greatest commandment. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says, the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what you need to see. Other rabbis look at the law, and they see loving others as the major theme. Right? But there's something that they're missing. Right? Why is loving your neighbor as yourself, and remember Jesus said, your neighbor is everybody, including your enemies. Try that on for size, Right? Why is loving your neighbor as yourself part of the greatest commandment according to Jesus? Well, the reason why is because it flows out of the first one. Brothers and sisters, this right here is why theology matters. Hear the words again. Notice what Jesus says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our supreme love for God flows out of our understanding of who He is. It has to begin there. You can't love what you don't know. It begins with God. God is one. He is supreme. There is no other. There is none like Him. There is no other God. He is sovereign. He is supreme. That is where they start. And then in light of that, their response, the right response of His creatures is to do what? To love Him supremely. One flows to the next. Loving God flows out of who he is. And loving our neighbor then flows out of our love for God. Because here's the truth. If you love God and you truly love him, you will love the things that God loves. And what does God love? All other people. Not just the ones you like. Not just the ones who agree with you. All other people. He loves everyone around you. And how dare us, his creatures, look down on someone that God loves and refuse to love them. Our love for others is supposed to be a natural byproduct of our love for God. And notice, right, not love them half-heartedly. We're to love them as ourselves. It's a high standard. It's a high standard here. To love them, right? Not just to tolerate their existence, not to just put up with them and, and not unfriend them on Facebook, maybe unfollow them, right? But to actively love them, to love them to the degree you love yourself. And this includes all the ones that are hard to love, the ones who irritate you, the ones who get under your skin, including your enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the summary of the law, right? God is the greatest of all things, and you were to love him supreme and, and love those Whom he loves, which is everyone around you. That's the summary. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying. That is the essence of the law. By the way, his answer is the essence of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you realize that. Because the first four of the Ten Commandments is about our relationship to God and the way that we are to love him. And the last six are about our relationships to other people. Love God, love other people. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets or the entire Old Testament and all that is commanded in those are summarized in what Jesus said here. And then he goes on and he says, there is no other greatest, greater commandments than these. Now I want you to notice though with what he says, how this scribe reacts to Jesus. Right? And the scribe said to him, you were right, teacher. He says, you're right. Now, Here's another prime example. Dr. Larson probably backed me up on this. Here's another prime example of where the, where, where the translation from Greek to English, we oftentimes miss and lose the emotion behind what's being communicated. Right? Because the Greek word that's translated here is right. Actually, it means beautiful. Right? And, and, and what this can be rightly translated as, that's a beautiful answer. That is, that is beautifully said, Jesus, is really kind of the emphasis of what this man is saying here. He's not just agreeing with him that he's right. He is delighted by the answer. He is surprised and delighted because not only is it true, but the answer is brilliant in its beauty, in itself. And, and, he, and he said to Jesus, you have truly said that he is one, that there is no other beside him, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This man recognizes the truth of Jesus' words and says that you're right, recognizing God for who he is and loving supremely him and loving what God loves, which is other people, is greater than all the sacrifices and all the burnt offerings in the law. That this love is greater than the sacrificial system itself. He recognizes the beauty and the simplicity of the truth that Jesus is saying. And I want you to notice what happens next. And it says, and when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Notice Mark records, Jesus saw that the man answered him wisely. Right? His response had wisdom. Right? His response was 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 one of great insight. And the reason why this is important is because this man is seeing something new. What Jesus said to him affected him. He is seeing something that the other Pharisees inscribed have not been seeing to this point. He is recognizing that it's not about the rituals. It is not about the fancy temple. It is not about, you know, these complicated ceremonies or traditions or rituals or or even circumcision. It's not about the complicated rules that have developed over time to help people from breaking the law. It's not about any of those things. It is about something deeper. He sees that it's about love. It's about relationship. It's not about religion, as we say. It's about a relationship. This man is seeing something that so many people don't see. Even people today don't see. He's seeing things in a brand new way. So much so that Jesus said to him, you're not far. From the kingdom of God. You're really close now. You're really almost there. Which is encouraging. Because he's on the right track. He's almost there. But it's also a warning. Why? Because he's not there yet. There's still something missing. There's still a connection that's not being made. There's still something that's in the way. He understands that the right, that that to be in a right relationship with God, one must understand who God is and love him supremely and love everyone else. He understands that. He sees that as the foundation of God's, all of his commands. He sees, you know, that Jesus is right, that these are indeed the greatest commandments. But there is a problem. He does not yet recognize the most important truth that's keeping him from the kingdom. And it's the same truth that's keeping the man that I was talking to this week out of the kingdom. Because think about this. He sees and he understands the greatest commandments are required of mankind to be in right relationship with God. But he doesn't see the truth that everybody must see in order to come into the kingdom of heaven. And that truth is this. As important and as beautiful as these commandments are, He can't do them. That's the truth that He is not seeing. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible. He can't do them. You see, as beautiful as this expression is, to love God and love others, as simple as it is, it can't get you into heaven. Why? Because you can't do it. You can't Do it. You can't love God the way that he deserves to be loved. You can't. Try. You can't love everyone else around you the way that God calls you to. It's impossible. You see, what you need to understand is the greatest commandment cannot get you into the kingdom. Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. Because as beautiful as this truth is, it is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. I'm going to say it again. It's not the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? The greatest commandment to love God and love others, that is not, it is not, it is not the gospel. And the reason why I'm pushing on this point so hard is because I have heard with my own ears people who profess to be Christians who will say the gospel is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as, as yourself. They say, that is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. Look what Jesus said. He said, there is no other commandment greater than these. This is a commandment. This is not the gospel. This is the law. The greatest commandment is the law. It is a summary of the entire law, which means it can't save you because you can't do it. The reason why we need the gospel is because nobody, nobody, nobody can obey the law and keep the law. Nobody can do it. This man recognized the beauty of this summary of the law, but he failed to see the most important truth is that he can't do it because nobody can. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. And then he goes on and says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because it's impossible. No one can live this way. No one can love God perfectly all the time. No no one can love all other people. All the time. I want you to just think about that person who gets under your skin, that person who frustrates you. Can you love them perfectly all the time? It's impossible. That's why in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, "No, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Together they've all turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He even summarizes and says, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? These two commandments right here. That's also why he says, now that we know That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no man, no human being will be justified in the sight, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." You see, the thing that the scribe does not understand is the purpose of the law is not to tell him what he needs to do to get right with God. The purpose of the law is to reveal to him the perfect standard of righteousness required by God to show him that he can never, ever, ever measure up to that. By summarizing the law this way, Jesus is revealing how impossible it is. Because you can keep all the rules that you want to. You can work as hard as you like. And you can... Perform all the rituals and sacrifices that are prescribed under the law, and then some. But you will never, ever, 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 ever love God perfectly the way that He calls us to and requires of us. And you'll never love everyone else around you perfectly the way God requires. It's impossible. It is hopeless. God's standard is not almost there. It is perfection. You see, the 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 law is not a rule book that we are to live by. It's a mirror. That is held up before our eyes. That shows us how vile and broken we are, and how impossible it is for us to live up to this holy standard. This man is close to the kingdom of God, right? Because he sees that it's not about rituals. He sees past the rules and the self righteousness that come with it, and he sees past all of the fasts and the, and the, and the feasts and the traditions and the regulation. And he's seeing that, that, that perfection you know, that, that God is calling to, him to, but he's not all the way in the kingdom because he's failing to see how impossible this standard is. And more importantly, he's failing to see his need for a savior to do for him what he cannot do for himself. He can't see his need for the gospel. Now understand, he is a religious man for sure. He loves God. He believes in Yahweh. He loves the scriptures and he knows them inside and out. He's devoted to his faith and he has been his entire life. But hear me, he is not at that moment in the kingdom. He's still on the outside. He doesn't know the gospel. And I'm afraid that there's so many people who call themselves Christians are in the exact same position as this man. That one day they're going to stand before Christ and he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Only to find out that they were inches away from the kingdom. I mean, they prayed a prayer when they were a kid. They went to church all the time. They tied, They sang worship songs on their way to town. They did proactive stuff like stop cussing and drinking, and they begin to say phrases like praise the Lord, right? And they even went to Bible studies, and they even maybe even started getting involved and taught children's classes, but then they stand on judgment day being turned away by Christ because for all of their religion and all their activity, they didn't know or believe the gospel. And I see things all the time that cause me great concern in Christianity. I see Christians all the time agreeing with things in the world around us that are antithetical to the gospel. I see people espousing views that that have no correlation at all with the gospel. I see Christians say things that causes me to ask, do they actually know the Bible? I have heard Christians in this congregation here say things that have caused me to ask him, Am I just not being clear enough? Am I not explaining the gospel clear enough? Am I not preaching the truth about God clear enough? Am I just speaking in a foreign language and people are just sitting there nodding, you know, and not actually hearing what I'm saying? I mean, I've seen it on social media. Christians are sharing posts by people who call themselves apostles, okay? Are you kidding me? Hear me, brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no apostles. They're all dead. All of them. There are no new apostles. They're all dead. There are no new prophets. There are no new modern day prophets. The revelation of Jesus Christ is complete in the word of God and in Christ. There's not a new revelation from somebody else on the outside who is an apostle. I see professing Christians who are posting pictures that say, type an amen and you're going to get some money. What? Type and say amen if you want to be blessed. What kind of superstitious nonsense are we believing in? Do we not know the gospel? Do we not know who God is? Do we really believe the superstitious nonsense that the world is peddling to us? I'm worried for the souls of so many people who will look me in the eye and say, I love Jesus. But I'm afraid they're like this man, that they're far. They're not far, right? They're not far from the kingdom. They're close, but they're not in the kingdom. That's why this text shakes me up. That's why this text rattles me. That's why I would just really like to preach over this text. So I just wanna take a few minutes with the time that I have left and explain to everyone that's listening online, all the way in Kenya, and everyone here, what you must do to enter the kingdom of God. Not to get close, not to get near it, but to actually cross into the threshold from death to life. I want to explain once again what you must believe to have life. That is my aim today. And it begins with telling you what the gospel is. And I think the best way to start with what the gospel is is to tell you what the gospel is not. And as we've seen, the gospel is not the greatest commandment. The gospel is not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving people. Right? That's the law. You can't do it. The second thing that it's not, it's not your personal testimony. I've heard people say to me, yeah, I I shared Jesus with them. I told them the gospel. And what they mean is I told them my conversion story. Okay, your conversion story is important. It's valuable. It's helpful, but it's not the gospel. Your personal journey, how God makes you feel, what God has done for you in your life is certainly an important component to talking to people, but it is not the gospel itself. The gospel is not your story. The gospel is about God and what he's doing. The third thing the gospel is not, it's not a ritual. It's not just some thing that you hear one time and then do, and then you're good. It's not just a prayer that you pray at some point in, in your life. A lot of people think of the gospel as, okay, the gospel is like the way that you get into the church and you learn all the other stuff about, like, that it's the launching point and you leave that behind to learn other things. No. It's always the gospel, all the time. Being a Christian's, your life is always about the gospel, whether you're brand new or whether you have been a Christian for 50 years. So that's not the gospel. But let's... Then talk about what the gospel is. Now, there are lots of people who define the gospel. And I believe all those definitions are good. But here's the definition that I think that I can give you as clearly as I can communicate it down into basically one phrase. The gospel is the good news about who God is and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ that we could not do for ourselves. That is the phrase for me that encompasses the gospel. The gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not the law. It's not the greatest commandment. It's not, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I wish people would stop saying that. That's a horrible way to preach the gospel. Because because let me just be really, really clear with this. God's plan, his plan, is to glorify himself. That's his plan. And he will glorify himself in your life, either by your, your salvation or by your condemnation. Either way, he's going to be glorified. Right? The gospel is not that you're so special that, that heaven went bankrupt to, to rescue you. Right? The gospel is, you don't want to go to hell, do you? That That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, you, you better get right with Jesus or you're going to get left behind. That's not the gospel. It's the good news about who God is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. What we couldn't do for ourselves. That's what the gospel is. But what is the content then of that good news? Who is God? Because it's about who he is, then who is he? And then what did he actually do for us? Now we're asking the right questions. Because That's the information we need to know. And so I'd like to share with you a summary of all those things. And I want you to understand that there are lots of different ways to talk about this. But there are major milestones, I think, that you need to cover when you talk about the gospel. And the gospel always begins with God. It has to begin with God. Because unless you know who God is, then the gospel doesn't make any sense. Because you don't know who he is and you don't know your need for him. Unless you understand who God is, your relationship with God... It is, and you know it, your relationship to God in the gospel it's just not going to make any sense it's just going to be a spiritual story so we must begin with God and what I like to tell people is God is the creator of all things there is none that's like him there are no other gods none he is holy, righteous, and just and he is perfect and he created us in his image and he created us to have a relationship with him in fact you could say it like this he created us for him We were created by him, for him. And we were created to give him thanksgiving, and we were created to give him worship. That is his righteous demand on our lives, that we love him supremely. That's what's reflected in the law, by the way. It's what we owe him. But our sin makes it impossible. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin makes us enemies of God. Our sin makes us rebels against Him. And so we refuse to love Him. We refuse to thank Him. That's what Romans 1 says. We refuse to worship Him as God. Instead, what we do is we love our sin and we love created things rather than the Creator. Right? We don't love Him. And because of that, his righteous anger then burns against us. And his wrath is stored up and saved for us. And his justice hangs over our head day after day for the time when we'll actually meet him. And what's worse than that is you can't fix it. Because sin cannot be overcome by our good deeds. The demands of the law are perfection, not our best efforts. The Bible says our best efforts are but filthy rags before God. God demands our perfect love and our perfect obedience. And God demands our perfect love for others. That's something we can't do. It's a standard that cannot be attained. So you can't try hard enough or work hard enough or give enough. It is impossible. You can't overcome the stain of your own sin. And because of that, you and I are justly condemned with no hope and no way out on our own. And if God were to leave us that way, he would be completely righteous and just to do so. That is the bad news that you have to come to terms with. God is holy, righteous, and just. And we are radically depraved sinners incapable of fixing our ourselves. But comes the good news. Christ became the payment that we needed to be set free. The payment that sets us free from the bondage of sin and death and sets us free from the coming wrath of God. Christ, God in the flesh, came into the world and He did for us what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the law. He loved God perfectly. He loved His neighbor, even His his enemies, perfectly. Perfectly. That's the importance of the incarnation. That he lived the life that you couldn't live and fulfilled the law that you couldn't fulfill. And then he sacrificed himself willingly and traded traded places with us on the cross. He went to the cross on our behalf. And on the cross, our sins, all of our sins are credited to him as if they were his own. All your shame, all of your hatred, All of your lies and your lust and bitterness and all that you have stored up in your hearts has been cast upon Christ. And the Father, instead of punishing you for your sins, poured out His wrath on His own Son. Christ endured in His body the awful and terrible wrath of a holy and righteous and just God for you. And He cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then He said, It is finished, and then he died in your place. Payment was made on your behalf, but not only did Christ take away your sins, he also gives to you the righteous perfection that you need to be in the presence of God. He kept the law perfectly on your behalf. He gives us his right standing before God. Not that we could be righteous on our own actions, but we are clothed in his righteousness the righteousness that he secured for us, but we are righteous because he is righteous. Christ made payment for our sin and was buried, and three days later, he was resurrected literally and physically, proving that he is what he promised to be, which is God in the flesh, and he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. And then everyone... Everyone who repents and believes the gospel is saved. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone is saved. Everyone who turns away from their own efforts to be self-righteous and grabs a hold of Jesus Christ. And Him alone has eternal life. And that life begins the moment you believe. And that life lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. And here's the thing that we need to understand is we need to continue to repent and believe. We continue holding on to the gospel. You will not make yourself right with God by obeying the law. You do not make a gospel profession of faith and then spend the rest of your life trying to keep the Ten Commandments on your own to perfect yourself. You can't do it. You turn to Christ, trusting in Him and what He's done for you, holding on to that promise to save you, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of you, God changes your hearts, conforming you little by little into the image of Christ, enabling you to become obedient. But you were never saved by your own obedience to the law. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And you can do nothing to add to that. The only part, the only part that you have is to repent and believe the gospel and keep repenting and believing the gospel. Now, should we pursue holiness? Yes. Should we attempt to walk in obedience? Yes. But not to make God love us and accept us, but rather out of gratitude and out of love for him, because he already loves us, and he proved it while that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. It's the bad news that we, of who we are in light of who God is. And it's the good news that God, by His grace and His love, what He did for us, that we couldn't do for ourselves in Christ Jesus, and we simply accept that and receive it by faith. That is the gospel. And in light of that, here is my call to everyone today. Whether you're here in the sanctuary, whether you're online as far away as Kenya. If you were somebody who has never actually understood the gospel and you've never put your faith and trust in him alone, I call you today to repent and believe the gospel, to turn to Christ in faith and hold on to him and him alone. That you rest in his finished work, that you turn to him and say, Lord, I know that I'm a broken sinner and I am, I am, I'm sideways with you, and I can't fix it. I need you to rescue me, rescue me. He will not despise you, he will not turn you away. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you're someone who has made a profession of faith in your life, but you realize I'm just been, you know what? I've been really religious, and I think I, I know some things about Jesus, and I and I and I love Jesus, but I realize like I have not understood the gospel at all. I'm calling you today to do the same thing: repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your self righteousness. Turn away from the efforts that you're trying to do to make God love you and happy with you, and the understanding that that God can't love you any more than He already does. Just understand that's who He is that you just accept it by faith and repentance, turn away from your self-righteousness and hold on to the promise of Christ. And if you're someone who believes that God will bless you or give you money or heal your grandma or give you the love of your life, if you'll type amen and share some posts, please repent of that. Seriously. It makes a mockery of your faith. It's superstition at best. In fact, here's a rule of thumb. If, 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 some, if a post says, type an amen, just delete it. If it says, type amen and share it, just delete it. And if a person calls himself an apostle or a prophet, then you just go to that block feature and just block them permanently because they're not, they're a false teacher. Amen? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what it starts with. That's what it gets us through. When you fall face down in your sin as you will Christian, you don't go, "Okay, I got to try harder and work harder and be better." No, you go, "Lord, I'm I've discovered that I still can't do it. I repent of this sin, but Lord, you have to change my heart, and I'm depending on you to change my heart." You're the only one that can. Let us shed the superstition of legalism forever and ever and let all of us know the gospel so well then when we hear people say those little words, and, and the things that we know aren't the gospel, we can lovingly show them that is not the gospel and call them to faith and repentance. Christian, that is your job. If you're called by the name of Christ, that is your job. We have been called to follow Jesus and he said to go in all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That is the call for us.